This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, The Business Station? BFM 89.9, 9.36am. You are listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Philip C. and Chong Jen Sun. This is WTF, or What's the Focus, our weekly roundup show of the top stories this week and other news tidbits that you may have missed. So we give you the TLDR, ICYMI, so you don't FOMO <laughs> as you YOLO. I have no idea what you're saying just now. <laughs> I just Me wanted <laughs> to throw all that in and I haven't even brought up IY. KYK, but uh, yes, just, you know, there we go. Let's uh, start off with, uh, I think, um, an anniversary that we should mention. And I don't like to use the word anniversary for an event that uh, really continues to be a tragedy for the people of Myanmar. And that is uh, the military coup that took place, which overthrew the democratically elected government, um, which Aung San Suu Kyi's NLD party was a part of. This took place on the 1st of February. Uh, This week marks two years since that happened. And the uh, military regime has announced an extension to its state of emergency effectively delaying elections. The junta had pledged to hold by August as it battles anti-coup fighters across the country. So many promises about holding elections and they keep on delaying and deferring it. And the worry, as you say, right, as we enter this anniversary, usually anniversaries are more allocated for celebrations. This is definitely not one cause for celebration. Um, Does the diplomatic community tire does it lose its fervor to right the wrongs here? That, for me, is the central question. You know, after as we as we enter the second year of this uh, dictatorial regime. So there's an interesting piece um, written by um, ANU researcher Hunter Marston where he looks at that diplomatic fatigue of sorts, um, Phil. And one of the things he mentioned was the Ukraine war that uh, broke out around in February last year that has taken a lot of attention um, of the international community. And and we do see that when it comes to at least the Western allies, their attentions and their resources are focused to supporting Ukraine. Um, And arguably, they would see that as a much bigger battle battlefront uh, to be paying attention to. In Myanmar's case, a lot of them still see it as a, as an internal matter, perhaps, or they've been pretty content to uh, leave the bulk of, of work or the bulk of mm. engagement to ASEAN. And ASEAN hasn't been very successful. Um, I nobody has said ASEAN is successful. I definitely don't disagree with you, because if you think about what ASEAN was post proposed to do, they were supposed to have a special envoy. Where is the envoy? What commitments have they made in delivering changes? We hear nothing really. There was a bit of work a bit in the first year, but since then it's died down. And and you can't blame ASEAN entirely. No doubt they have tried, but Myanmar proves very intransigent um, to Mm. these efforts, you know. So when you have a party that doesn't want to engage or is um, pretty comfortable being isolated. So I think that was something that uh, this uh, piece by Hunter Marston pointed out as well, that uh, there have been sanctions, and even this uh, two-year anniversary was marked by further sanctions uh, by the West, uh, yet the junta goes, oh, we're fine with being sanctions. We've, we've, we've been through that for, for most of our time 
in the government. I guess what is interesting is while there have been sanctions by the Western government, but there have not been sweeping sanctions that would leave many unemployed. There are no legal restrictions for Western yeah. companies on dealing with partners in Vietnam. So the door has been kept open to global brands like Adidas, H&M, and even Uniqlo to continue ordering products from subcontractors in Myanmar, because Myanmar is very big in the garment industry. But economic-wise, the daily minimum wage for most factory workers has been about 4,800 which is about 1.68 US dollars since 2018, despite inflation. But factories are seen as the only place for Myanmar citizens to really earn a living. Mm. Yeah, so the question is, where is the private investment? I don't think that's going to come through any time, right, to uplift the incomes for many of these people. It's a conundrum, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you don't want to prop up an oppressive regime. But on the other hand, you don't want also to take away um, livelihoods from people who do need it. Um, I think one of the striking things is the fact that, um, I guess, investment-wise, Myanmar isn't entirely cut off from the world. It says that it managed to secure nearly 1.5 billion US dollars in foreign direct investment during the year 2022-2023. So money is continuing to flow. I think Singapore um, is a huge investor there, (laughs) as is Japan, Korea and Thailand, they all continue to invest in Myanmar. And I have no doubt that Malaysia, well, actually, I'm not sure if Malaysia still does. I feel that we do. There are companies with factories in Myanmar. Yes. Um, so, yeah. It continues on. But I reflect on, you know, Telenor, uh, Telenor DG's mm-hmm. parent company. They had huge challenges, you know, I think, keeping operations in Myanmar. So eventually, it depends perhaps on which type of investments you're trying to, you know, capitalize True. on. Who's paying attention? And who's paying attention to it? What kind of scrutiny it? is on it? Exactly. So maybe the manufacturing, you know, they will close a blind eye. But is that really good as well? But mm-hmm. the MNCs, I think, have a hold themselves to a higher standard then. So um, the fact that Indonesia is taking over the chairmanship of ASEAN this year, don't forget that Cambodia held the presidency last and uh, they are quite close with yeah. uh, Myanmar and the leadership. So everyone's looking to see how Indonesia will uh, I guess, strategize in dealing with Myanmar, something to keep an eye on. Um, in other news this week, I think we have a couple of indices that have come out, um, one of them being the Corruption Perception Index by Transparency International uh, that came out this week. We did have a conversation with TI Malaysia's president, uh, Dr. Mohamed Mohan, yesterday. Uh, do look up that podcast uh, where he talked us through the findings. We didn't do very well. Um, you know, uh, 47, right? 47 out of 100 yeah. in score. What is that? A C? A, a D? It sounds like D. my son's uh, Chinese uh, test results. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> in exams, right, in university, a pass more is 40%. Okay. So it's a D. Or, uh, or E, actually. Right. Mm, uh, well, not good. Not, not good, good especially since we are Asian and we do not tolerate Ds. Um, in any case, uh, Dr. Mohamed Mohan did give several recommendations on how we can arrest this decline. Uh, Dr. Sri Anwar uh, Ibrahim, the Prime Minister, has said that uh, he intends to uh, do that. Uh, we'll have to wait and see whether his actions match the rhetoric. Well, I was just reading the transparency uh, press release and the, hit, the headline was very stark, right? 2022 Corruption Perception Index reveals neglect of anti-corruption efforts in Asia-Pacific. Nearly 90% of countries have made no significant progress since 2017. So really, the world has gone backwards, right, when it comes to corruption, uh, I think, uh, perception. And a specific point on Malaysia, you know, it says it's been declining for years as it struggles with grand corruption in the wake of 1MDB. But the current Prime Minister, although he has promised to clean up the country, has still appointed a Deputy Prime Minister with serious corruption allegations as part of efforts to stabilize this unity government. 
Yeah, I think Dr. Mohan did mention, he cited a few reasons for Malaysia's decline. One is actually the lack of political will to fight corruption. And we saw various stimulus packages which were initiated during COVID yeah. without being tabled in Parliament. And the patronage and the unqualified appointments to GLCs. And of course, the LCS, where there's been no conclusive report and the government appears to be brushing the issue aside and now hoping that the Rakyat will forget. I have to take solace that, you know, we are classified as a flawed democracy. The score is equivalent to what we see in the United States. We are in the same category as the United States with respect to the democracy level. And you are referring, of course, to the Democratic Index. This is yes. issued by the Economist Intelligence Unit. Uh, we actually did a little bit better than previously. In 2021, we scored 724 this time around this year, we scored 7.3, which, as you pointed out, is a flawed democracy. Yep. Um, same as Uncle Sam. And, you know, I think, I, think, but I think we cannot avoid the fact that the worst decliner in terms of democracy is Russia, of course, falling 22 places down the ranking to 146. Yeah, I think uh, if you look at China, it's a prime case study for what the West calls a communist or a capitalist country. But it's way up there in terms of innovation and growth. Growth, growth has come in the context of a rather stable communist rule, suggesting that democracy and growth are not inevitably mutual dependent. Many Chinese believe that the country's recent economic achievements, the large-scale poverty reduction, yeah. huge infrastructure projects, development as a world-class tech innovator. I mean, you have the likes of uh, Tencent and Alibaba, which are global leaders in their own field uh, in a seemingly communist country. So the debate here is where the correlations, the correlation between democracy and corruption, the correlation between corruption and economic growth, right? I think this is, I think, the biggest conundrum, whether there is a clear trend or sign that says, look, uh, that whether or not it ties together. Of course, one will definitely argue that with increased corruption, there will be long-term impact on economic growth for sure. But what does it stay for the short term then? That is right. Uh, all these conundrums, very complex discussions there. Uh, before we head into a break, let's take a quick look at this article coming out of the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, this is an article about CEOs taking pay cuts. I mean, I think we saw a whole set of quarter four earnings results coming through. And as we end the year, we've seen actually huge CEOs from US big multinationals, from Goldman Sachs to Morgan Stanley, and many of the tech CEOs also taking significant pay cuts. Yeah, I think most CEOs now, they take a rather modest basic salary, but most of their compensation is variable. And that variable yeah. portion is tied to their stock options. That's probably the way to go as that ensures they have skin in the game and be motivated to achieve their KPIs. I mean, top management need to be seen to be running the company like their own and not just be a wage taker. So the question is, what's the basis of the RAM? Is it going to be 100% driven by you know stock options and also your market cap as opposed to your performance of the business and perhaps also other stakeholder considerations? Correct. And if your company's not listed, then it becomes a little bit more difficult. Yes, exactly. 9.46 a.m. Let's head into a quick break. We're going to come back with a look at other stories from the week, uh, particularly from our own shores. Stay tuned to PFM. 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to The Morning Run with uh, Phil Jensen and myself, Shazana. You're listening to WTF or What's the Focus, our weekly recap show. So we are ending the week uh, with the unveiling of Barikata National's Shadow Cabinet. That came out yesterday. They announced a 29-member Shadow Cabinet um, with several quite interesting designations in the list. That's right. Muhyiddin Yassin is the chief of MPs. Abdul Hadi 
Kalong is the deputy chief of MPs and Hamza Zainuddin is the opposition leader. Usually, I would have thought the chief would be the opposition leader. That's right. My question is, who becomes the prime minister then? You know, who, who is the prime minister candidate? The chief of this, leader. The chief of MPs. The chief of the leaders. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so presumably, uh, any prime minister candidate would be Tan Sri Muhyiddin Yassin. But uh, Dato Sri Hamza Zainuddin um, is, I suppose, the official spokesperson. And he's the one who has been the most vocal in, uh, I guess, putting out statements from Brigata National and what they stand for. And let's hope your interpretation is correct. I think what's very striking about the the list of cabinet is, I think some noteworthy points is perhaps it's lack of diversity in terms of uh, uh, gender, lack of diversity in terms of race. Uh, that I think is, and also lack of diversity in terms of its representation across the states. I think only two MPs from Sabah Sarawak as well. So um, there are, yeah, I, I would have to say that it does appear to be a little bit one note in terms of who is represented in this cabinet. And for me, it does um, raise questions about how multicultural uh, Perikata National as a coalition is, because yeah. they do try, they do say that uh, they are the alternative to the very multicultural unity government at the moment. But at the same time, I want to give credit where credit is due. I think having a shadow cabinet is a very good step forward yes. in our our democracy to be able to have that check and balance from the from another side uh, to to keep tabs on what it is that the government is doing and um, to their credit they're the first I think coalition that has actually listed out specific MPs to look at the issues covered by specific ministers we did have some semblance of this under previous administrations I think um, um, Anwar Ibrahim back when he was in opposition uh, Pakatan Harpan did have like a committee looking at different issues um, Zaid Hamidi back in 2018 also had some people looking at some portfolios, but this is, um, it's very, uh, there's a lot of breath to it. Yes. Um, so I think in that sense, it's a good step forward. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Shaz. It, it is com- commendable that the list is out and they have a shadow cabinet and hopefully they become a, a credible opposition and to keep the current MPs in check with intellectual and stimulating debate during parliamentary sen- sessions. That may still be a tall order, though. <laughs> yes, <laughs> just not nonsensical <laughs> name-calling. So, yeah, hopefully that happens. Hope. We yes. can hope. It's always important to hope. Well, I, I mean, I, let's let's hope that that's the case. Will we also again get a shadow budget? Will we get also shadow policy responses as a result? And this is something I would like to point out that um, some observers, such as political scientist Dr. Wong Chin Huat, has, has said that this needs to be institutionalised and institutionalising mm. this could be in the form of having the shadow cabinets uh, formally sworn in, um, giving them some form of uh, allocation allowance, uh, giving mm. them legitimacy, giving them resources to be able to effectively provide a check and balance. Because it's true, if you don't have access to information, you don't have access to what uh, data there is, you can't really give a measured response or a measured alternative to what policies are out there. So moving forward, I do hope that there are efforts to further strengthen this mechanism of check and balance in the government. Uh, in any case, let's turn our attention over to uh, happenings o- over in Malacca. Yes, there's a plan for another deep sea port, uh, but there's also been a lot of pushback on it. Many MPs have also objected to calling it a white elephant project. I think 
this is a long-standing saga, right? I think even before GE15, I think for the past three, four years, we've seen the state of Malacca ask for all these very interesting infrastructure projects, you know, with the kind of business logic that, hey, you know, we can kind of be that bridge to Sumatra, which is a huge market in Indonesia. And so, Shaz, we've, and, and Jensen, we've even seen things about even a Disneyland in That Malacca. is right. It does seem that all these very curious infra projects come from Malacca. So, uh, you know, curious indeed. But more about this deep seaport. I mean, what are the objections that people have about it? Well, I think this one has an environmental claim because this will involve a lot of deep sea reclamation. So I, I see that for this specific project and for many projects actually that come along with Malacca, there's also the environmental veneer with it. In tandem with the whole point of, you know, the infrastructure of a port, we also heard recently from our own Minister of Transport that Selangor was contemplating to build a third port. So are we overported in the whole scheme of things, right? Is our port infrastructure more than enough if we are planning all this infrastructure then? Noting that we also have infrastructure in Johor. Yeah, and this is not really the first sort of grand project that has been proposed in Malacca. I think way back in 2014, they had the Malacca Gateway port, and yes. I think it's it is abandoned at, at present. I mean, every now and then you will hear of some grand project like that costing in the tens of billions and you wonder what sort of value and economic creation it will really create. Also, has feasibility studies been done if this port will cannibalise other ports such as Port Klang, North Port, West Port and how even the completion of the ECRL may change the dynamics of trade? I mean, this port is massive, yeah, equivalent to 900 football fields. Don't play, play. <laughs> it's incredible. And this is a point that's been raised by transportation experts every time we speak to them on the show. There really needs to be a much more coherent policy look at all the different transportation links in the country. It does seem a lot of the time that these projects are launched and they occur in silos or they don't take into account how it will affect other forms of transportation and especially the environment. And I feel that with Madani, the concept of Madani, with sustainability coming into play, I do hope that the government is a lot more cognizant of how these kinds of development projects can impact um, the broader environment and our sustainability. Um, in the little bit of time that we have, I do want to maybe turn our attention over to another issue, uh, an issue of crisis, really, in our healthcare sector. That's right. According to Code Blue, the, uh, they've actually run a poll among 1,600 government doctors, pharmacists, dentists, nurses, and medical assistants from the MOH, and they say that 95% believe that the public healthcare system is currently in crisis. And nearly all respondents expressed anger at the present situation. So I've been seeing a lot of reactions to this on social media. And this survey has also been picked up by mainstream media um, across print. Um, it is a very worrying signal from our healthcare frontliners that they are feeling the pressure and when we read about um, doctors who have opted to leave the public health care service, it really makes me wonder how long um, the system can, can survive with the current strain on it. The challenge, overworked, underpaid, burnt out, insecure with their career progression. These are the concerns from the survey. A whopping 7 in 10 respondents say they're considering quitting their job, while more than half express willingness to go on strike. Yeah, it's quite uh, disheartening to see this happen as these workers are really the backbone of our of our country during COVID-19 and they continue to even be the backbone even post-COVID. I mean, besides remuner remuneration, other factors such as mental health, burnout, mm. job security, or, and even job satisfaction are some of the issues which I hope MOH will really address. And these are not easy issues to address, right? These aren't. There's, there's no magic wand to fix this overnight. It is going to be a long, hard process. But what's important is to actually see genuine engagement 
and genuine commitment by the government to actually do something rather than just kick the can down the road? I mean, is budget the solution to the problem? That's why I'm, I'm wondering, because there's a lot, of po- a lot of discussion to say, look, we need to up the budget on the Ministry of Health budget. But I don't think that's a standalone solution. It has to Not be looked at, at with it's how we change the systems and processes as well. One piece of the puzzle, but it also go, it also goes, boils down to where is that budget being allocated to? What are the priorities? And this requires, um, you know, really serious thinking on the part of policymakers. Uh, I hope they, they do pay attention. 956 in the morning we're coming up to 9:57 that's all that we have on WTF this morning we do have the 10am news bulletin coming up next and then it's over to enterprise from everyone here at the morning run have a good long weekend happy taipusam bfm 89.9 what's the focus on bfm 89.9 the business station You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.